Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Unconventional Soldier. A military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome, everyone, and thanks again for downloading another episode of the podcast. Our guest today is John Tullock, who was our last guest on the last two episodes when he discussed his service as a FOO, a Forward Observation Officer, in Vietnam with the New Zealand Army. John is the author of several articles about the Vietnam War and Borneo. He also gives talks on this subject to military, history groups and schools. Since retiring from the civil service in 2015, John has begun writing The Borneo Graveyard, 1941 to 1945. This is a product of 12 years of research. This is his first book and the subject of this podcast. Borneo was the land of the headhunters and it was a World War II graveyard for POWs, NTNEs, locals, Javanese and Japanese. John's book follows the raising of five Royal Artillery Air Defence Regiments in 1939, their deployment in late 1942 to Southeast Asia, their short campaign in the Netherlands, East Indies and eventual captivity as POWs in Java and North Borneo. His account describes the invasion of Borneo and the subsequent four years of Japanese occupation and depicts the sadistic treatment of Australian, British, Dutch and Indian POWs in the various camps in North Borneo at Jesselton, Sandakan, Ranau, Labuan and Batu Lingtang. In addition to this, he takes into account the three death marches from Sandakan to Ranau. His account of the internees covers the men, women and children from all over Borneo interned in Batu Lingtang. They experienced the unspeakable behaviour of the guards and several internees were killed or massacred trying to escape the Japanese regime or gratuitously executed before liberation. In addition to this, the locals of Borneo suffered terribly with torture, executions and massacres occurring throughout. Malnutrition, starvation and death were endemic. Tribes exacted their revenge and over 8,000 Japanese died during the withdrawals in Sabah. The secretive Z Force gathered intelligence, trained local guerrilla fighters who harassed and exacted a heavy toll on the Japanese. Finally, John covers the convalescence at Labuan of all the POWs, followed by their repatriation to the UK and the dreadful wall of silence experienced by so many of them when they got back home. John, it's great to have you on the pod again. Can you, tell, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this book? Yes, indeed. Um, first of all, thank you for having me on. In um, 19, 1999, I was doing one of my visits to Jaywick, instructing, and my family ca- uh, came on afterwards to join me out there. And after Jaywick, we then went across to Sabah and did the normal things, climbed the mountain, Turtle Island, Sepilok. And when we were at in Sandakan, I picked up um, a magazine and it talked about Australian POW camp in Sandakan, which had recently been opened up as Memorial Park. I knew nothing about it. I study Southeast Asian history, and this was something I was totally and utterly unaware of. So we went and visited, and um, it had opened up two months earlier, and there's the Memorial Hall 
And that took me three times attempts to actually walk around in what I read. And I was absolutely appalled. And I learned about the POW camps, Sandakan, Ranau, and the three death marches. When I got back to the UK, I looked further into it because it had mentioned there were British POWs. And I discovered that, um, or learned, that half of the British POWs were from my regiment, the Royal Artillery. The others were RAF or RAFVR. There were no uh, British POW survivors. They all died. Luckily, the Australians, they had six survivors. And because of those six, we learned what on earth happened in Sandakan. If I put it into percentages, 99.75% of the POWs, Sandakan, Ranau, the death marches, died. There were only the six survivors. I then decided something had to be done. So why do you think as a nation or in the forces, because I've never heard of it either, why did we not know anything about this? From what I can make out and having researched and read into it, Borneo was a bridesmaid in the Southeast Asian war against Japan. To the Japanese, it was a vital island. To Malaya Command, to the British out there, it was not vital at all. And the horror of what occurred out there, people did not want to know. The POWs or the former POWs were moved back to the UK. They were given orders of silence. And in my book, there is a copy of it. They had to sign. They were not allowed to speak, uh, tell their parents, their wives, their friends, and certainly not the media. Now, my uncle, he, um, he was there, but he went, he went up into the railway. He never, ever spoke about it. And the reception back in the UK was such that, you know, you've arrived, you look all sun um, bronzed, you look fat, you've filled out. What have you done during the war? You've had a nice time in a POW camp. That actually was the reaction um, by, by many people. A question was asked in Parliament by an MP, and the reply basically was, we're still searching for the POWs. The government knew. Yeah. That in, um, in British North Borneo, or today's Sabah, there were no British survivors. The army that fought in Burma, the 14th Army, that was known as the Forgotten Army. Were mm. these soldiers part of the 14th Army, or were they completely separate? They were totally, utterly separate. In British North, the Sabah, they were gunners, all air defence, who initially actually were going to Basra. They're a desert uniform and all the rest of it. The first convoy uh, was then diverted to Singapore six heavy anti-aircraft and 35 light anti-aircraft. But the ship carrying all their equipment went to Basra. In Singapore, they had a massive ordnance depot. And so they were able to re-equip, redress into greens. And within 24 hours of arriving, they were in action. Six heavy anti-aircraft at the end of January were sent over to Palembang in Sumatra, three five with two batteries of um, three five, Three five remained in Singapore with two batteries from six heavy anti-aircraft. That regiment, three five, was basically decimated, and they became part of the uh, Gunner six hundred at um, Balalaya Island in the Solomons. And the reason why six went to Palembang in Sumatra was that there was um, the airfields in Singapore were basically becoming inoperable due to Japanese bombing. 
So they moved across into um, the Netherlands, East Indies, so they could support Singapore uh, from there. The other convoy with the other three regiments, they went to Batavia, today's Jakarta. They arrived there in their sand-colored uniform. Some of them remained in that uniform throughout. They fought in the Dutch East Indies. That's where they went into captivity, and they became part of the the Java Party and uh, and RAF. was a party of close to 900 men, and they're the ones that went to British North Borneo initially to Jesselton. I think it's interesting that that war in the Far East, as you alluded to, is relatively forgotten. I think for most people, it starts with the bombing of Pearl Harbor and ends with the atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But within that, you know, there's a huge bit of history there that's just not known about. For example, I can talk to people and they've never heard about the fall of Singapore, where you know a garrison of 85,000 British and Commonwealth soldiers uh, surrendered to the Japanese. And really, I would probably say from what I've read, the fall of Singapore brought up that myth of the uh, invincible Japanese soldier who was mm. the master of the jungle. That is very true. But um, And the Japanese force was half the size of the, um, the force in Singapore. But what is not told is that the Tiger of Malaya, as he was nicknamed, the senior Japanese general, he had his, um, his primary division. The divisional commander went up to him and said, my men are knackered. I cannot go any further. I need to um, withdraw back into Malaya and to regroup. Um, he said, you will attack. And if you don't, you're on the fastest aircraft back to, back to Tokyo and you know what will happen. People have a go at, at Percival. Percival signed the document of surrender. Percival did not want to surrender. He wanted to carry on fighting. Um, but his generals did not. They said, our, our boys are knackered. And yet all the everything you read, the diaries and all the rest of it, gunners crying over their, their guns, why are we surrendering? We've got all this ammunition. We want mm. to carry on. The generals, and one of them, Gordon Bennett, the Australian, having told his um, his boys to carry on fighting, then with a small group, got on a sampan and um, sailed across to Sumatra, then got down into Java, where the, um, the senior British general there said, get that man onto an aircraft back to Australia. I don't want him anywhere near us. The Australians were disgusted with that, that guy's behaviour. His name became a bit of a byword for swearing, didn't it? Uh, oh, in Gordon. Australia, yes. In yeah. Australia. Oh, yeah. Bloody Gordon Bennett. Yeah, um, I remember. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. I think the I think we have to remember. I think the British, the British were still focused on Europe, weren't we? We were always focused on Europe after the North African campaign. The Far East was it wasn't close to home. D Day was everything. When you read all the stories, if you watch all the films, they're mainly about the European campaign, not the you know the the, the tough campaign in Italy or the horrendously tough campaign in the Far East. Yeah, but also, alluding to what John was saying about the Japanese soldiers being knackered, it wasn't until the battles of sort of admin box and Falkohima that we realised how to fight them, and that, and that was yeah. to draw them into defensive area, let yourself actually be surrounded in a lot of cases, but also because their lines of yeah. communication were also stretched. There's a lot of air supply drops going in, 
Uh, and we realized they weren't the masters of the jungle. And if I'm right, John, I think the Japanese army was actually the sort of the poor relation to their Navy and Air Force. And um, when you read stuff about it, tactically, uh, apart from the, you know, they were absolutely tenacious and fought to the death. But in the attack, they were not that tactically astute. You know, I've just read a book about the Battle of the Admin Box when there's accounts of them coming up the same riverbed four or five times, treading over the bodies of their comrades. Not not going flanky, not trying to yeah. different. No, they they were certainly very ten, very tenacious and indeed they were fearsome. Yeah, and what, and what let them down, and it is something that shows up very much in Borneo, was their inability to administer and logistics. Because they basically you know, relied on capturing what uh, capturing food and ammunition from from their enemies, didn't they? There was no proper logistics chain. They're a locust army. They're good in the advance because they eat the food that is there. Yeah. But once they're stopped, and Slim realise that, there's no food for them to eat. The logistics is not coming up. And the old statement, tactics can be done by anyone, but logistics has got to be done by the professionals. And actually, that that holds very true, very true indeed. In Java, where the fighting was, there's one battle there, the Battle of Kalijati Airfield, where two batteries were there. Um, one from six heavy anti-aircraft, their guns had to be destroyed in Sumatra and they were acting as infantry. They were attacked on the 1st of March. And what occurred there, which I believe is probably the greatest number of air defense gunners dying around a single installation, the airfield, occurred. 103 members of the Royal Artillery perished there, either killed in action or executed straight afterwards. 29 out of 30 RAF and 43 Australian Air Force. Absolutely bloody. And one of the um, the guys I've listened to, his, his voice, he described as firing his Bren gun, and it was like hitting cement. He said they just kept on coming on. And then he decided discretion was the better part of valour. Take <laughs> 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 the, um, the firing block and, and quietly bugger off. But no, it was it's horrific. And that is in the book. On the 8th of March, the Dutch surrendered. And on the 9th, the British forces um, surrendered. And then they went into the first of the POW camp. And what occurred there, just to give a, a feeder, 200 British and Dutch soldiers decided to go up into the mountains and carry on guerrilla warfare. The Dutch were more adept that the British soldiers were not, and they were gunners. And they were rounded up very rapidly indeed, stuck into pig baskets, put in the back of trucks, driven around for people to see, and then taken out into the sea on back of trawlers and dumped overboard. A few judicious shots, they drowned or the sharks got them. In another instant, submarine, Dutch women and children were ordered on board on the decks. Submarine went out. They were told they were going to join a merchantman, which would take them to Singapore, you name it. Um, Once out of sight of land, it then submerged. One Dutch woman survived because there happened to be a Javanese fisherman who watched it. That particular submarine commander was never brought, brought to justice And in one of the POW camps, the Dutch women had been passing food through the wire to the British um, POWs. And this was mainly fruit and things of that nature, was vitamin C is essential. And the new guard arrived 
but has come out of, out of the big Japanese cities in Formosa, grabbed these women, eight of them, brought them into the camp, paraded all the POWs, and gang-raped them in front of them. And reading the script of one of the POWs, REF, who stood there and watched, he said he was crying and peeing in his pants, with a squadron leader going walking back backwards and forwards behind everyone, saying, steady, steady, remember this, remember mm-hmm. I would have thought it would be scarred. And then the Java party was formed of gunners and of RAF. They moved to Singapore, Keppel Harbour, 17-mile walk to Changi. And people have this idea of Changi being a small area. It's not, it's 25 miles by 25 miles. It's, it's vast with various barracks inside. Of course, you've got Changi Jail. And Malaya Command greeted them, said, why aren't you marching properly? You're a disgusting shape. And they got nicknamed the Java Mob, which mm. they thoroughly enjoyed. You, you know, if you, you nickname someone, I'm a member of the Java Mob. By Javona. It was. A fortnight later, they got on board one of these hell ships with the Russell Party, and the Russell Party named after Lieutenant Colonel Russell, a thousand odd, and they um, sailed for Kuching. Russell and his party disembarked there. Prior to disembarking, and this is all to do with fear, 30 prisoners, POWs, were taken off onto an island and executed. I think they probably were executed because the Japanese decided that they were the most unfit. Why keep them? Several had died on that voyage. And then the hell ship carried on round to Jesselton, today's Kota Kinabalu. And they arrived there and um, they went to Batu Tiga, which was the POW camp about two miles from the aerodrome, which is now today's international airport. They were there to build an aerodrome. 880 odd, 886. They went in, they arrived. The area was an acre. They had four buildings, enough to house half of them. The other half had to sleep out in the elements. It was on a slope. Um, It was the local prison for 40 prisoners. Here they had 886. And the loo designed for 40 men. Well, you can imagine what happened. The loos filled up and raw sewage then rolled down. And it was only when it went past the guardhouse at the bottom that the Japanese said, oh, yes, you can, you can dig DTLs at the bottom. Over, over 450 went down with dysentery. And um, in the six months they were there, 51 died. And then in two parties, they were moved to, Je- uh, to Sambacan, to the British camp. And the Australian lot, which were B-force of 1,500, had already arrived previously but they were separated. So, John, I can hear the passion and in, in your knowledge about the subject. Was that one of the things that drove you on and made you think that something had to be done about bringing this to a wider audience? Yes, and indeed. And if one thinks of the triangle, one side was Sabah Salute. And what I wanted to do was to um, organise commemoration, remembrance, honour those gunners that, that died in, uh, at Sandakan Rana and on the, the, um, the death marches. And to do that, this was called Sabah Salute. And thankfully, we got it, got it going and it occurred in 2011. And um, 13 gunners and one AGC from 205 battery, 205? 105. Oh. So 14, 14 boys and girls, Major 
down to Gunners. They were they after the um, Sandakan Day or VJ Day service. They then walked the um, 164-mile route, the Death March. They had to arrive up there by the 25th. In the meantime, I was sorting out the um, memorial service, which was an unveiling and dedication of the Royal Artillery Memorial at the Kundasang War Memorial, which is just outside of, of Ranau. They arrived on the 25th. On the 27th, we had our unveiling and dedication. And uh, why the 27th? Because 27th of August 1945, the last 15 POWs, five officers, 10 ORs, Australian and Brits, were executed at Rana. And it, and it was successful. We had a, over, we had 150 plus people attending. They'd come over from Western Australia and uh, Sydney as well, sorry, from Perth, West Malaysia, from Sarawak, and of course within Sabah itself. The second bit was doing a roll of honour, and that was with all Australian and British POWs that perished in Sabah. The detail in there was 11 columns of detail, number, rank, name, to where they're <laughs> buried, etc. That took a long time to get that, get that detail. And that I then presented, A, to the Sabahan government, and that lies in the museum there, and I also presented it to the Royal Artillery at the Service of Remembrance at Hyde Park, formerly done, and that now lies in the church at Lark Hill in display there. And the third part of the triangle was the book. So, John, what is your book about? If you could just give us a synopsis of your book. It's in five parts. The first part is um, the raising of the regiment and moving to Southeast Asia. Part two is Borneo and the invasion of, of Borneo, the Japanese occupation, liberation of Borneo, and the um, Agus Samatan Obo operations, and then Labuan and um, repatriation. It covers the, the history of Borneo going back to the 1800s, because that actually was when the Japanese started looking at Borneo seriously indeed. What was the strategic significance of Borneo to the Japanese? Two items, oil and wood. Now the oil, if we go, and this is actually rather pertinent of today, maybe, certainly with Iran, I believe, Japan was running riot in China. We've heard all heard of the Nanking massacres and the rape yeah, of, yeah. etc. What they were doing there was quite appalling. And America, ourselves, and the Dutch all three of us said, we've got to somehow stop this sanctions. We'll stop the oil. Where was Japan getting her oil from? Palembang and Borneo, Sumatra and Borneo. And Borneo, three, uh, Surya in Brunei, Miri in uh, Sarawak, and Tarakan um, in Dutch Borneo, was able to produce more than enough oil for the Japanese homeland, and um, their war effort. John, am I right in saying that Japan has no oil, that they don't have, they can't produce oil in Japan, can they? There's no oil fields. Yeah. So they had to get it. Lord Russell of Liverpool, in his book, said it, it gave Japan every reason and excuse to get down there and grab Borneo. And actually their big mistake was going and attacking Pearl Harbor. And of course, there was wood, and Borneo is full of full of hardwood, which is um, can be used 
use for all sorts of things. But that was the importance of it. But we didn't seem to take much notice of it. As an example, Sabah had no regular force at all. They had a few that were armed with First World War weaponry. Brunei had nothing. And Sarawak, yes, it it had a, um, a force of about th- a thousand, but these were civilian. And funnily enough, 2nd 15 Punjab Regiment had gone there, A, to destroy the Miri Wells, and B, to de- defend Sarawak, a battalion of a, th- of a th- thousand men. And here's one of the most epic stories, which I, I write about. On the 25th of December, they start their a fighting withdrawal for 800 miles through the Borneo jungle. And they come out at, an, at a place which I find unpronounceable to be met by Japanese Marines who say, we've got 24 hours to make up your mind, surrender, or we'll chase you down as, ter- as terrorists. And the CEO had no choice. He was out of ammunition. He was out of food. And the one supply of ammunition they had was Bren gun magazines with no ammunition in, um, grenades with the wrong primers, shambles. He lost half his men, actually over half. But it's an extraordinary story. And mention that Punjabi regiment. There's another aspect that's little known as well. as a huge contribution from the Indian Army and uh, some of the African Commonwealth countries as well. Well, they've been empire countries at the time, but there's a huge contribution to by those countries in uh, Burma as well. And obviously, well, you're talking about, John, even this Punjabi regiment over in Sarawak area. Indeed. The Dutch um, had their forces um, there, the KNIL, a bit of fighting, and then they, they they surrendered surrendered as well. But they were they were better better equipped than what we were. And then the Japanese occupation, what I could refer to as the terrible years, which covers Jesselton, Sandakan, and and Ranau. Thirty British officers and two o two ORs, both um, REF, were transferred to um, Kuching to Batu Lintang. And 140 um, Australian officers, and basically what the Japanese had done was take out the um, the command element, those that were back at um, Sandakan and at Batu Lintang, which was the largest camp, up to over 4,000 uh, POWs, internees, Australian, British, which was the largest amount, the Dutch, uh, this is military, Indian POWs. And, J- and Javanese, and then there are the internees, men, women, and children. What I do describe describe in 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 there is um, the food situation. One talks about malnutrition and things like that. The Japanese soldier and the foremost and guards had eight eight hundred grams of rice a day. Now, if you think of that, you go into the supermarket and it says, "Oh, fifty grams is enough." For, for a person, this is 800 grams. Initially, the POWs had 250. And then if anything happened at Sandakan, a bombing raid on the aer- aerodrome, because they were there to build it, it was reduced. And so by the 1st of January, 1945, um, there was no rice. They were g- given no rice at all. And they were eating frogs, snails, worms, you name it. And shortly after that, the death marches started. This was very much the same at Batu Lintang, at Kuching, the same sort of um, thing. And then there's the maltreatment. 
and it's a standard sort of thing the fly the flying lessons of arms outside um and um with st- rocks and if you if your arms dropped you got beaten up there was the cage which basically is a pig basket you couldn't stand you couldn't sit you were open to the elements you could spend a day in there um one australian i think uh, private anier he was in there for for four months um you were brought out once a day and basically you were beaten up before you pushed back in again the medics were doing their best and when they passed them water um putting in some form of painkiller in there if they had it and in kuching they called it the dog kennel now the cage at, at sandakan was made all of bamboo the cage the dog kennels in kuching were made of bamboo and barbed botox cosmetic adobotulinum toxin a fda approved for over 20 years so talk to your specialist to see if botox cosmetic is right for you For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Our framework was um, bamboo, the floor, the sides, the ceiling was barbed absolutely shocking and then of course there were the diseases everyone died of malaria according to the japanese but there are all sorts of the other things there's java java balls there's happy feet where at night time would come on you had to go and walk around to this excruciating pain and um very very and the best way i've always described it when i've given talks and especially at schools So go and fi- find your father's Wellingtons, and fill it up with water, and then start walking, and re- try walking 164 miles like that. Very, very, your legs just fill up. One prison POW, the doctors took over eight pints of water off him, and he still died. And there's wet berry berry, and there's dry berry berry. That's a uh, vitamin deficiency, isn't it? Berry berry is it vitamin D? It, I think. It's, uh, um, what is Marmite? B. 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 Yeah. Oh, vitamin B. Yeah. Vitamin and that, B um, if I was giving a talk to in public, I'd bring out my bottle of Marmite, and so that would have saved a lot of lives. They'd have <laughs> a bit of meat for their food, which is the size of an oxo cube, once a week. Fish heads, which were generally rotting. Then I bring out the business. I hate the word so sort of saying heroes but the the guys the standout guys were the the medics and the padres also do the the locals and in Sabah once the locals knew I was writing loads of them were coming forward and so I I had to select many of the stories were were very, very similar and the, and they were shocking a guide that I got to know She told she was 
um, child number 13, baby number 13. But when the war started, father and mother had a six-month-old baby. He was Chinese. She was Kadazan by, by tribal origin. He was captured by the Japanese and put into prison because he's Chinese. The mother, because she was married to Chinese, was contaminated. The Japanese loved that word, contaminated. And so she and her sister with the young baby um, disappeared up into the jungles. And there they lived for three years, going from cave to cave, eating flora, and they survived. And the mother came back. Husband amazingly survived, and she had another 12 children. That is one story. And then there's the massacres, the double-tenth um, uprising in Sabah. The result of that was 5,000 locals being massacred, the massacres that were occurring. And in uh, Kalimantan, or Dutch Borneo, at Mandor, the figure is between 2,000 and 20,000. And the Japanese in Kalimantan were inventing. Uh, it was plots, the Haga plot. Oh, this gives us a cue, an excuse to go and kill a lot of people. And so that sort of went went on. And then in late 44, at Sandakan, 100 POWs, British POWs from Sandakan were moved to Lab 1, and 200 were moved from Kuching. There were no survivors. They died at Lab 1, Brunei Town, which is now BSP, in Kuala Balite, and finally, the, the fi final surviving lot were um, executed in Murray. There were no survivors, and they were all British POWs, Royal Artillery. And then it's liberation. Well, prior to liberation, the Australians had this organization, SRD. Um, they provided Z Force, they were a search department, and there was the Agus Party. And these guys initially were, they, they watched shipping going past and they gathered intelligence they built up um, an intelligence um, organization they then started training guerrillas in british north borneo Sabah. they actually created two hospitals and when the time came they then started attacking the japanese and this tuned in with the australian oboe operations, the, the three OBO operations. I'm not familiar with the OBO operations. Can you just give us a rough outline of what, what the OBO operations were? Yeah, they're amphibious operations. OBO 6, which is, I consider the main one, was launched at Lab 1 and Brunei Bay. And then there's the one at Tarakan. And then uh, there's the OBO operation at Balakapan. Both those two were in Kalimantan. But if I concentrate on OBO-6, which um, was a massive op operation involving air, sea, and, and land, um, having landed, um, the Japanese, they put up a good fight on Labuan Island. The Australians moved onto the mainland and pushed down the east coast of uh, British North Borneo and then southwest down the... Um, down towards Brunei, and basically that was it, securing the main places. Um, everywhere they, uh, the three places where they landed, it was um, it was hard fighting, and it's the first time the Australians have ever done amphibious operations, and they were highly successful. Were any Japanese 
uh, soldiers or officers held to account for their actions by a war yeah, crimes trial? Yeah, they were war? at Labuan and at Rabaul. And the key key one was Lieutenant Colonel Sugar, who was the commandant of um, all POW camps in Borneo. He surrendered, was moved to Labuan, and escaped the gallows or the firing squad by committing Harry Carey with a bottle. Um, his batman mm. found a bottle and and um, and he killed himself. Others were were tried, were either shot or hanged. Uh, one who's hanged a nasty piece of work. He actually bit one of the guards as he was being taken up to the gallows. Uh, the warrant officer in charge of the Murray executions, he was brought to justice, but a lot got away. And then, of course, you had the San Francisco Agreement in 1951, where all war crimes would cease. And shortly after that, the Japanese forgave them all, then released those that were doing life, etc. No no prisoner, Japanese POW, did more than 10 years. And the, the, when the last prisoner left the prison in uh, Tokyo, the bulldozers lined up and destroyed it. It's gone. It's a strange thing, that, though. The Japanese have never sort of, you, you know, I think, was it in the 70s, you had the German chancellor go to Paris and... yeah beg for forgiveness more or less uh, but the Japanese have never admitted any wrongdoing for the part in the Second World War have they? It seems to be a national thing that they just don't want to come no. to terms with. They've said regret isn't it? Regret but they have never apologised I don't believe. Certain companies have apologised because they want to build a factory. It's, it's strange how the Japanese military and hierarchy were treated very differently to the Germans who if you were a guard at a, at a, a concentration camp we pursue them to the 80s and their 90s. We still pursue them. But there was an element of that after the Second World War where they didn't pursue them at all because they basically brought them into the mm-hmm. government and the civil service yeah, there was of Germany that. to help it run, didn't they? Um, yeah. And one of the horrific things about Obo operations sent um, what they call the Kuching Force to Kuching to liberate Batu Lentang POW camp and they arrived on the 11th of September. There was uh, Sugar and his foul team handed over, etc. And they found in his paperwork, in his desk, and the briefcase of one of his officers, officers an order that um, um, internee women, children, and nuns were to be given poisoned rice for their breakfast. Internee men and Catholic fathers to be shot and burnt. 500 POWs to be marched to the mountains, then shot in the jungle, burnt and buried in pits. The sick and weak left at Batu Lintang to be burned to death. The entire Batu Lintang camp to be burnt, destroyed by fire. And that was going to occur, but the Australians arrived four days before it was going to occur. The war had already finished a month before. Was this after the, the surrender yep. of Japan? 15th of August. Yep. Oh. This was on the 15th of September wow. that was going to occur. It's shocking. And, there, and then, of course, early uh, early uh, 45 up in Rana were the three death marches. Um, the first march, 29% died on it. They were carrying goods. And there were nine, nine groups. I've walked half of it, and that was from a place called Boto to... Um, to Rana, and I did 
did that part because that was jungle. And today, the remain uh, the first part is all um, oil palm plantations, and so it bore no resemblance. And I wanted to get a feel, and um, we just crossed stream after stream after stream. In fact, I fell at one place and cracked three ribs, and here I was with proper clothing, boots, and all the rest of it, um, and fit. And these POWs were in a, in a parlour state. And then the second group left, and they were given, both groups were given four days' worth of rice. They were told on the fourth day they would get more rice. There wasn't, so they were having to eat whatever they could eat. And behind them came the killing squads. If you stopped, you were killed, bayoneted, bludgeoned, strangled, drowned. Um, and at one, one place, 33 POWs were, were executed. Um, on the, on that particular march and at Paginantan, here's one of the most horrific things that occurred. Kempan and Tai, who were just down the, the river, came up on the boat. These are yeah. the Japanese secret police, weren't they? We want fresh meat. You, you. So they grabbed two prisoners, executed, and then butchered the meat and then butchered the bodies for their fresh meat. Another delightful thing they were doing, grabbing a prisoner during the night and taking a strip off the leg where there's a bit of decent flesh. And that was a, a death warrant in itself. So it would give taste to their, to their rice. There's a lot made, John, of the sort of the Bushido code of the Japanese army, you know, this whole warrior culture and ethos that they had. But from your research and what you've seen, that level of cruelty... Was that just sadism, or did it tie into this code of Bushido? What's your view on that? Yeah, it's it, it's a it's a strange thing. I, I suppose if you take Bushido to its its original state, there is a code of chivalry in it. But then, when um, the powers to be became um, Tojo, who became the sort of the prime mover, this is the new Bushido. This is how we're going to going to behave prisoners you must never be a prisoner you fight to the death and therefore if you take a prisoner they're not even worth um what they are so if they can't be of any use get rid of them so kill them um which is really quite quite a simple process and one's got to say that they treated their own the japanese had their own death march they shot their own who couldn't keep up because they were a liability. And so there, there was this extraordinary thing. I read a book written by a Japanese called The Bone Man of Kokoda, and he describes his um, being a recruit and how he was dehumanized. You're now in charge of this section. Give them orders. That wasn't good enough. He'd drag out his friend. Now hit him. And so he'd give a light tap. No, hit him properly. This is how you hit a person with the slap, and he went flying, and his friend said, for heaven's sake, whack me one. So they ended up slapping each other. And here's the thing about slapping. You see it across the face. There are two ways, across the face or across the ear. And if you do it across the ear, you rupture the eardrum. Reading Weary Dunlop's book, he was an Australian iconic doctor in Java, and um, in his notes, it, I think it was something like 34 
POWs with um, burst eardrums due due to um, due to the slapping, and uh, so the sort of beasting um, uh, occurred, and so that that is how you treat people. The second party uh, death march group arrived at Ranau. They were greeted by six POWs, and they asked, "Where are the others? They're dead. They're exterminating us." And that six was six out of four hundred and fifty-four. And then the third third group left, which were 70-odd. Majority were British POWs. They never got past mile 30, and they were executed along the route, leaving 218 or so behind in Sandakan. It's interesting, during my chats with people in FIPO and the organization, oh, yes, you know, we people talk about the crucifixion. We don't know where... Uh, but there's no paperwork, no nothing on it. Well, the crucifixion actually occurred at Sandakan, and it was the senior British officer, a captain, Royal Artillery, who um, he was a tall man, six foot six. Right at the end, he went and killed a pig, which was um, the Japanese had a little compound there, and they cooked it up and he wanted it for his men. And the Japanese were beside themselves who did this? And he stood up and said, I did it for the welfare of my men. They stuck him in a cage for the night. Um, the following day, they crucified him, then disemboweled, put a nail through his forehead. I won't go any further than that, but it's, um, it's, in, it, 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 it's in the book. When that um, information came out by a local who said this had occurred, the Australian uh, party that came along they were they were the burial party, the inf- um, finding out information, etc. Oh, we don't believe that. And the guy said, "Yes, it, he's buried here." And eventually pointed, "No, he's buried there." So they dug up and they found this six foot five, six foot six person who had brick clothing on, nails through the feet, through the hands, disemboweled, and one through the forehead. And they said, ah, the Japanese um, commit cannibalism. They had orders that they could do so if they were if they were hungry, as long as it wasn't a Japanese. When the prisoners all came back to the UK and back to Australia, why did the government silence them? We knew everything that was going on in Germany and Europe. Why was it silenced about the far east? The, the, the country was war-weary. The, the war in yeah. VE Day had occurred. They'd beaten the um, the Germans. Um, the country was in a parlour state. Actually, people were not interested in this lot out, out there at all. And the POWs, if I go back to Labuan, they they were put into these into the Australian hospital, twenty four field ambulance, and the Australians were absolutely fantastic. Good Aussie Tucker is the only way to describe it. They filled up, put on weight. The doctors were all over them. In the book, there's an RAF officer who had X number of teeth extracted, and the dentist said, how on earth did you survive with the pain? And they said, you just get used to it in, in, in the end. They had tea parties on the beach. Um, they got tanned. They chatted amongst themselves. They couldn't chat to the Australians. And um, Hilda Bates, an SRN, she described, we are um, amongst our barbois friends. I fear for when we go back. And um, my, she really hit it on the head. And so they sail, sailed back and they arrived. And actually, there was no sort of bands and that sort of go, goings on. 
They signed this this document. As I mentioned, you're not to talk to these people, but there is another bit in, in there. When you arrive back at a British port, you will be interrogated. What a word. Not interviewed. You will be interrogated. Mm. One of the, the things I quote, um, bits I, I quote is um, this particular soldier. He was interrogated and he said, all right, you want to know the truth, I'll give you the truth. This officer, this officer, that warrant officer, and the person take, taking this, obviously bitter, nothing like that occurred. No, I mentioned my uncle. He arrived at his parents' house in Bakewell, and he went up to the, um, the French windows, and his parents were, were sitting there. His father thought he'd never make it. His mother said, no, he's alive. And there he was. They had no idea, no telegram, no nothing. There was no backup. You mentioned, or we discussed General Percival earlier, and you're saying that you felt that you know he's he's got a bit of a raw deal, and you've just mentioned no backup or help there. But can you just tell us a bit about General Percival and what he did after the war to help POWs from the far? Yes, uh, General Sir Archibald Percival. He retired in 1946. Very much a reviled man because he everyone cursed him for being surrendering Singapore. Unfortunately, Churchill sort of led led that um, attack. He was determined that he was going to do something for the uh, for the former FIPOs and and internees. He fought and he got five million pounds reparation from the Japanese. Now that is in 1946. Now I've done. I went onto the Bank of England sites and sort of put in what is five million pounds in 1946. To what it is now, it's a massive amount. It's two hundred and whatever it is million mm. pounds. He fought their case until he died ten years ten years later, publicly and behind behind the scenes. Basically, got hold of these the FIPO organisation. The government was saying, "Well, if you want to set up something like that, do it in your own local area." Roehampton Hospital was the um, the FIPO hospital, but then it was made into an NHS hospital. And so we're not interested in um, in FIPOs. These guys were suffering from all sorts of things, diseases, mentally. And Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine then said, we will take on that mantle. And uh, my word, they did. Looked after them. Man or woman could go to them. They'd look after them physically, you name it. Because a lot of the diseases people were getting out there remain in the body like dysentery, uh, malaria can come back mm. viciously, and so on and so forth. And, of course, there's the aspect of, of, the, me- of, the, of the mental side, or PTSD. Uh, I'm afraid it's a thing that gets banded around too, too easily by the non, should I say, the non-military, probably being non-PC there. But there was humour. There was good black humour. And one instance is um, he was an internee at, at Batu Lintang, and he worked in the in the hospital. He was uh, an estate manager who had a, a name for himself as being a bit of a a jungle doctor, um, u- using various things. And this Japanese soldier came up and said, "Please, can you sort me out?" And he said, "What?" And so he dropped his trousers. I said, there I saw this disgusting-looking thing hanging down. 
and said, all right, yes, okay, I can, but you've got to bring me a bottle of, you've got to get a bottle of sake. So I went and got a sake and said, in that, you stuff it full of chilies. Can you get chilies? Yes. <laughs> right. Bring it back when you showed them. So I showed it. Look, there are all these chilies. What do I do now? Leave it in the sun for about a week. And don't open it, just leave it then, because what it was doing was fermenting. And then you've got to drink it all. He said, I never saw him again. <laughs> so, John, what's the story behind the stunning photo used on the book cover? Well, I took that photograph um, when I was doing my recce for Sabah Salute, and it um, was in 2010. Um, either the 16th or 17th of August, Sabah Tourism, which is a government um, department, had given me a driver and vehicle, and in the back I actually had two um, sons of FIPOs. We drove the um, the basic route of the, the Death March route. And this particular part... And I was taking photographs with uh, my digital camera. And this particular part, the, which is a road, um, a dirt track now, was actually a single man or pony track, or rentis as they call them. Um, and in the distance is Rano. And I drove over, just click, click, and, and we carried on down, down the track. When I got back to Lark Hill, um, three months later, uh, three weeks later, I was going through my several hundred photographs to create a PowerPoint to go and brief the um, the director, flicked past this, and then went back and just stared at it. I said, I, d- I don't believe this. I got up and walked around, came back, sat down, and said, it's a reflection. It's a reflection of the tile um, on the vehicle which was used to protect the um, the dashboard. But it was stunning in itself. So had this towel made the appearance of figures, ghostly figures on, on the actual photograph? Yes. Is that how it worked? And what it amounted to was the reflection was being thrown up on, onto the windscreen. And I had it made into a picture, which I actually presented to Sabatourism, and another one to the Kundasang War Memorial. But um, prior to hand, um, presenting the, the picture, I met with um, the driver and guide and said, look at that. And he said, yeah, it's a reflection from my towel. But, John, there are three things wrong with it. I said, what's that? My towel has only got six figures on it, the six that escaped. I don't want the ones that that have died. And if you count up, depending on the size of the picture, there's either... um, there's either four, 14 or 20, or in, in fact, you can get 24. The second thing is the way I have my towel is that your figures should be upside down, walking on their heads. Mm. And thirdly, on the right-hand side of it, which I pointed out at the beginning, there is there is this um, figurine of, of either a Japanese or a Formosan guard with his rifle and a pig sticker on it. That is not there. There is nothing like that at all. And he said, that is really very, very odd. And I thought, that is it. This was in my office. That kept me going in many ways in, in researching and writing. And that is the um, that is the story behind it. 
And what I'll do, John, is you've very kindly supplied me with a photograph of the book cover, and I'll put that up on our social media accounts. Uh, and the links for that will be in the show notes. So if anybody wants to track them down, the, the picture that John's referring to, you'll be able to see it there. John, how can listeners get a hold of a copy of the book? Well, that that is um, that is through me. I, I'm the only distributor here in the UK or the publisher out out in KK. The book itself is 492 pages. It does have maps and it has photographs. It weighs one and a half kilograms, so it's um, it's not one you can sort of read read in bed above your head type of thing. My email address is uh, John Tullock four one four five gmail dot com. And again, I'll put that in the show notes, John, so people can. Just click on the show notes and you'll be able to get John's yeah, John, email John from Pollock, that. John at gmail.com. Uh, the book itself what? is £25 um, plus uh, P&P, which is a further £4.87. That's great, John. Thank you very much for that. So, and thanks for coming on the podcast, John. It's been uh, really, really interesting. You've certainly fired my interest up in uh, another unknown aspect of the, the campaign in Southeast Asia. Yeah, I've read a lot of books about the Far East, but I didn't know any of this. That's it for another podcast. And our thanks to John for coming on and telling us about his book and to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming in. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. And as I've already said, John's email and how to get in touch with him to get a copy of his book works will be there. And uh, if anyone wants to get in touch, you can find us all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And if you've downloaded us from iTunes or Spotify and like the podcast, it'd be great if you leave us a review there, as these two platforms are where the majority of our downloads come from. Thanks also to Nick Beale for offering technical support for his company, ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.